Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the next step in the coronavirus crisis. So we had great news this week when the two vaccines that are have been developed, one from Pfizer and one from Moderna, have shown great results and have proceeded much faster than anybody thought. And in fact, now look ready to begin the rollout of all of this as soon as December. So that's a rare bright spot that comes in the middle of just a terrible, terrible, terrible time for the virus, which is just sweeping the country in many places, much worse than in the spring. I sit in New York City and we're all just sort of waiting for it to arrive here in a huge way. So I want to sort of talk through how to what all this means and how journalists, even journalists who aren't health experts, which is most journalists in the country, how they should be reporting on this, because this obviously affects audiences everywhere. Really happy to be joined by Sarah Zhang, who is a staff writer at The Atlantic, who's written all about this. Uh, Sarah, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. You wrote a piece a couple of days ago that had this like amazingly um, optimistic headline on it. It It's called The End of the Pandemic is Now in Sight, which I thought was great. (laughs) Although, you know, reading your piece, and maybe I'm just a sort of born pessimist, reading your piece, I didn't realize that the possibility of a vaccine was that, that there was a chance that there it would it would just be either impossible or really really difficult to find a vaccine for this particular virus. Well, I'm somewhat of a, a, a pessimist, <laughs> so you know I think all the scientists I've been talking to all said this virus really behaves a lot like all the viruses we've seen before. We yeah. think there should be a vaccine, but you know you, you you don't know until you do the trial, right? Um, I think one of the things you uh, kind of encounter when you're covering like drug development or vaccine development a lot is that one, it takes a long time, and two, you know, a lot of things just don't pan out. And with uh, with the coronavirus vaccines, kind of the first few, including the first two that we've seen, they were based on technology that had never really been used before in a mm-hmm. widespread vaccine. So it was just, who knows? Like, you know, theoretically, this is how it should work, but um, biology is messy. The immune system, especially, is really like complicated and unintuitive. So I always thought it would work. I just, you know, wasn't, I didn't, I wanted to set expectations low. So if the first trials didn't work, I wouldn't like fall into despair again. <laughs> yeah. And it worked. I mean, and you pointed this out and others have pointed it out. It, it, it happened like remarkably faster than these things usually take, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it beat the margin of the next fastest vaccine by like three or four years, right? This is, it's taken less than a year from when we first sequenced this virus to getting a, a vaccine that seems to work. Um, it is just really remarkable. And I think part of the optimism of the headline was just kind of taking a small step back to, in this year of really bad news, to like recognize something that is really good and remarkable. And of course, um, you know, as we experience through this whole pandemic, just having the science is not enough. There's a lot of other things that need to happen and we should recognize that. But, you know, we should take the good news that we can get. Yeah. So, well, first off, on that front, on the on the speed of the development, what accounts what accounts for um the fact that it was so much faster, is it just like lucky breaks or there was just like a ton more resources poured into it? Yeah, a few different things. Uh, first of all, yes, a ton of resources. You know, it's sort of like the entire 
um, you know, biopharmaceutical apparatus is like focused on this one particular virus and just everyone is on it at the same time. So of course, that's why you're seeing so many different vaccines. Uh, Second is actually just a lot of basic science research has actually laid the groundwork before. So Pfizer and um, Moderna's vaccines, they're based on a new technology called mRNA vaccines. And they, you know, we've been kind of doing a lot of basic science about it. And the idea has always been these vaccines are really fast to make. We've just never had to do it before. And here we had the opportunity to do it. And wow, it's actually worked. So kind of proof of concept. And I think third is um, uh, one of the reasons vaccine trials take really long time is that um, it's it's really risky, right? Like if, if it doesn't work, you've spent a lot of money running this clinical trial. Um, uh, so just like between each phase of the trial, there's a lot of time lag as you're kind of going back and looking at the data and a company is not going to start making a vaccine until they get the approval. Um, in this case, uh, because, you know, we want this vaccine as soon as possible, that was the, that barrier was removed. Um, right. Operation Warp Speed has always invested a lot of government money and there's been, you know, kind of upfront contracts signed that these vaccines work, we will buy, you know, millions of doses. Yeah. So, so this is great. We have this vaccine, the, these pharmaceutical companies have done their job. Um, and it now, so we're now switching to a kind of new problem, which is how do you get this vaccine to everybody? But before we, and you've written about that and you've written about how you sort of frame it as sort of speed versus ease of distribution. And we chose speed, um, which is going to cause challenges going forward. Let's talk about that in a second. But first, as somebody who writes about this, I'm really, I'm really struck this week. Uh, you know, we still, and this is mind blowing, we're still in this mode of, of a debate in the country about how much, how seriously we should take this virus in terms of the actions that we should take to stop the spread, whether you're shutting down businesses, shutting down schools, whatever. It seems like a dumb, ridiculous thing, but it's what it's what's happening. How do and I noticed this week that some of the um, the people who are complaining about the shutdowns are now citing the vaccine and mm-hmm. saying, "Well, what's the big deal? We have vaccines. It's only going to be a matter of weeks or maybe a month. So that's more evidence for why we don't need to." be too worried about this. Do you think about that when you are writing stories about the vaccine or when you're reading other people's work? Like how do you how do you balance the optimism and the enthusiasm about the vaccine with the fact that it could be used as a sort of political weapon? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I, I will say just uh, part of part of my, I think I think you've read any other vaccine story I've written. I have not been that optimistic. Yeah. And I've always been saying it's going to take longer than you think. Mm-hmm. It's more complicated than you think. It might not be as good as you think. Luckily, on the last one, it is as good as um, basically a vaccine could possibly be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, but I, I, I think you're totally right. Um, the, the flip side of the argument of the vaccines coming soon, which shouldn't do anything, is that uh, actually, it means the things we do now will be really, really impactful, right? Because, like, I get it. If there's no, if there's no vaccine and this, this just feels like it's going to drag on indefinitely, like, why not just get COVID and get over with? But if we know a vaccine is coming soon, um, it means that anything, all the 
uh, infections we prevent now is an infection that we might be able to prevent forever. Mm. And the problem with the virus and what we're seeing now is that, of course, um, we're going into this huge spike in the fall. The virus, virus growth is exponential. So it's kind of kind of basically goes straight up if we don't do anything about it. Um, so it, what this means is that it's going to be a huge impact when the vaccine does come. And anything we do now um, it's even more, it's, it's makes even a bigger difference that we know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think in all the, you know, in, in my last story where I was as optimistic as I've ever been about this vaccine, I did end on that note, which is that um, this, this vaccine is not going to be available to people in the next week, not to most people in the next month. Um, and we still have to get through this winter. And that's the context to keep in mind. Yeah, you wrote, um, the vaccine by itself cannot slow the dangerous trajectory of COVID-19 hospitalizations this fall or save the many people who may die by Christmas. Um, what is your what is your view of um, where the country seems to be in terms of, of grappling with what they need to do to... Um, to keep themselves safe versus, for instance, the spring. Um, and I just, wh where do you live, Sarah? What I live city? in Washington, D.C. Okay. In, in New York, I got to say, it seems to me that people are um, more uh, cavalier right now than mm. they were in March. Maybe that's just, maybe that's just a personal thing and maybe it's just the people around me, but is that your sense too or not yeah yeah i think so um you know i think part of it is just fatigue you know like we don't want to stay at home all day by ourselves anymore i think part of it is also you know uh if you've been going out and like you know eating outside or seeing friends like it's very likely you haven't gotten sick right because um it's not like every time you see another person you're going to get covid it's most likely you're not going to so like just from your lived experience you start occurring this feeling that like oh maybe it's not that bad of course, you know, I think that's just what's so hard to like wrap our minds around is that um, there's a small chance of something going very, very bad, but most of the time it'll be fine. And how do we, how do we deal with that like small chance of something going bad, right? Um, I think one, one frame I've been thinking about is that it's not just about uh, you personally. It's, um, you know, with, with Thanksgiving coming up, um, it's, this is an especially bad time to get COVID, you know? hospitals are already full, they're going to get more and, and more stressed. Um, that, that is the worst time to get COVID and the worst time to have to go to a hospital. Um, so, you know, it, 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 I, I think you're totally right that like, there's a feeling that, oh, you know, we've been through this for so long, how much longer, but uh, the fact of the matter is that this is going to be the worst time to get COVID. And then six months from now, thanks to the vaccine, it'll probably get a lot better. So I think if we can have that mindset of like, this is bad now, but it will be over. Um, yeah. We just have to get through this. Did you see the um, this video that Rachel Maddow posted in the last day or so? No, I haven't. Um, she, uh, her partner, uh, maybe her wife, but I don't, her partner um, has COVID and got mm -hmm. quite sick. She, she just goes on. She has this video that basically says, "Look, you know, my audience takes science seriously." My audience um, listens to public health officials, and yet I know people are like, 
they're resistant. Even my audience is resistant. And it was sort of a personal plea. I don't know you at home except through this medium, but just believe me. Whatever you have calculated into your life as acceptable risk, as you know, inevitable risk, you know, something that you're willing to go through in terms of this virus, because statistically, hey, probably it will be fine for you and your loved ones. I'm just here to tell you to recalibrate that. Frankly, the country needs you to recalibrate that because broadly speaking, there's no room for you in the hospital anymore. So for the sake of your country, you really can't get sick and need to go to the hospital right now. And the only way to ensure that is to ensure that you do not get infected. But please just also know that whatever you think of your own life and however much risk you are willing to take on for yourself, that's not how this works. What you need to know is that whoever is the most important person in your life, whoever you most love and most care for and most cherish in the world, that's the person who you may lose. One, it was remarkable that she felt that she needed to speak directly to mm -hmm. a population of people that you would think already has gotten this message, but, but apparently hasn't. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I, I was just going to say that one of the most like haunting things I've heard in writing about COVID is um, doctors, um, palliative care doctors caring for patients who are dying and, uh, the doctors are talking to the family member who got that patient sick and how guilty the person who yeah. got the person who's like, you know, that, that's something that I can't stop thinking about. Yeah. Um, so how, well, well, how, do, how do you, how are you navigating the personal decisions here? Like, what are you doing for Thanksgiving? Uh, my partner and I are doing a small Thanksgiving with just the two of us. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the, yeah, there are lots of discussions with the rest of the family about what to do. Um, you know, I, I think I think you're asking what's different about March. And I feel like back in March, there was some sort of a sense of solidarity. Like this is yeah. this new, frightening, unknown thing. Um, we're going to go into lockdown and come out the other side. And I think what's happened right now is that um, it's become so divisive and so politicized that there's just, just no longer this feeling of solidarity. You know, mm -hmm. I think it's much easier to give up Thanksgiving if everyone around you is doing the same thing, right? Because of, that's the right thing to do. But we just don't have that sense of solidarity right now. And, you know, I hope that um, with enough, and, you know, I, this is, I, I'm, I, I don't have any, um, this is probably too optimistic to say that it will actually make a huge difference, but I just hope that with the reporting that is telling us what is going on in hospitals right now and, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel of vaccines, we can uh, have that sense of, okay, we need to get through this together, but we'll come out the other side. Yeah. It's a, it's a storytelling challenge. It's a journalistic challenge because, you know, we've all seen, um, we've all read uh, a lot of interviews with healthcare workers and we've all seen a lot of videos from people saying how terrible things are in hospitals. And I think people sort of get, um, they get um, inured yeah. to it. Yeah. And, and so it's like, how do you, how do you say it yet again in a way that will finally break through? And that's why I frankly thought the Maddow thing was interesting mm -hmm. because, because she is giving her sort of personal voice mm -hmm. to something. And I think that, mm -hmm. that actually could penetrate to some people, I think. But um you know, yeah. I mean, have you thought about like how can I, how can I, if I, how can I? You have to keep saying the same thing and issuing the same warnings, but how can you do it in a way that will reach people that weren't reached by the other 
stories that you've done? Oh yeah, that's that's honestly been the biggest challenge of the past what nine months now. Um, yeah, you know, I think as journalists, we all you know wrote all the stories about this back in March and just have been getting waves and waves of feeling of deja vu. Like, how do I say this again? You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I I think there are maybe different ways of framing it. I think my colleague Ag Young have a, has a really great piece just going up today, uh, just Friday, um, that looks at the best prepared hospital in the United States and how they are getting crushed. So Which I think is this, where. Uh, in Nebraska. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is the facility where, you know, Ebola patients were uh, were sent because it has, like, the best, you know, kind of some of the best biocontainment facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they they are like, we can't deal with this, you know, with what's coming down. So I think the fact that that, that extremely narrow frame, um, I think it's helpful, you know, just mm-hmm. having some very specific location and people uh, and place in mind. And just if even the best prepared place in America can't handle it, I think that you know, probably cuts through a little bit more than just saying hospitals can't handle it right now. But I also think it, it's helpful that it's not in, you know, for instance, in New York City, which yeah. is a place that a lot of people sort of expect to have a problem. Yeah, um, exactly. So if it's kind of a, if it's kind of an unexpected place that you can identify with. Speaking of deja vu, I, you know, I, um, my, my family is originally from China. So I feel like I watched everything happen in China and then like no one in the U.S., Thought it could happen here. Then I watch everything happen in New York, and everyone else in the US thought it couldn't happen anywhere else in New York. Yeah. Uh, it's just this feeling of like somehow we need to like personally experience it before we really realize how bad it can get. Yeah, I think it's about sort of a lack of empathy. Like, yeah, we're just feeling really disconnected from a place that's far away from you. But you know what's you know what's crazy is that we're seeing the inverse of that in New York right now. It's like oh, well, it's happening in the rest of the country and it's because they're Trump people or they didn't take it. It's, and I'm like, guys, it's the way you can see the wave. It's, it's, it's on its way. Yeah. But the, even here, there's a resistance. Um, so let's talk about how we get these vaccines into people's hands. I, I framed this thing earlier and this is a piece that you ran in September about um if then you're writing about if it comes what's going to be the issues in terms of getting it out and i brought up this speed thing versus how delicate these vaccines are going to be and how they're going to have to be stored and how they're going to have to be transported and stuff what what what's involved there and and is the moderna um the moderna and the pfizer vaccines are different that way right yeah, they're slightly different, though they're both a little bit more fragile than, or in Pfizer's case, a lot more fragile than your typical vaccine. So um, as I was saying, they rely on mRNA, which is just kind of like an inherently fragile molecule. So Pfizer's vaccine has to be stored at, um, I think is it 90, negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit, which is much, much colder than your average freezer and your CVS or your you know local clinic is probably not going to have one. Um, Moderna's can uh, can be stored at kind of normal freezer temperatures and for shorter times at um, uh, fridge temperatures. Um, the, the sort of one almost kind of silly but actually big logistical hurdle is that Pfizer's comes packed in only 1,000 doses. So that's like the minimum order you can get. Um, and if you imagine your rural clinic, that actually, you know, that just actually might be too many for you. And like, how do we efficiently advocate, uh, allocate, efficiently allocate um, all of these vaccines? So I think the cold chain is going to be a problem. Um, 
the you know it's something we can solve yeah right and we've been anticipating it for six months so people have been working on it so but can i just ask you like I, i'm confused i've read i've read your pieces and I've, I've read other pieces about this cold storage thing mm-hmm. but so what is what what does that mean for my so does that that must mean that my neighborhood pharmacy won't get the pfizer vaccine right they won't have it because they don't have they don't have a fridge that's that's that cold yeah, that's probably what's going to happen. Pfizer has been working on basically a storage solution, as, as they call it. It's basically a cardboard pizza box. Um, you keep dry ice in it, and that can keep the vaccine for uh, several days. Um, I see. So they could get it. They could yeah, get it. Yeah, they could. You know, I think that uh, the, the dry ice and the temperature issues, um, this, you know, this, this kind of gets at, like, why you need to do planning and, like, logistics is, like, harder than when you first think about it. But it's, like, the, the, the minimum thousand doses, like, I think really constrains, like, what places can get it. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, uh, I think, you know, over time we'll start to see these logistics problems solved. Um, it's very likely that, um, in fact, Pfizer is working on a freeze-dried version of the vaccine, which can probably be shipped at room temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this is what sort of one of the things of what we mean by the speed versus convenience trade-off. One of the other reasons vaccines uh, can often take a long time is that you you take time to like reformulate it to make it a little bit easier to use, and we don't have that time right now. Yeah. What does it mean if you are in a remote place that where it takes a a while for the mail to arrive or uh, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, obviously I'm thinking in, in developing countries, which mm-hmm. I assume it's going to be a major problem. Right. But yeah. I'm also even thinking about sort of rural parts of this country. Yeah. Well, so Moderna's can be, I, I think, um, stored at kind of just freezer temperatures. Uh-huh. So we do uh-huh. have, you know, we do have the infrastructure for that. And yeah. this is why I was so glad to see the Moderna news this week as well. So yeah. at least two different vaccines. Yeah. Um, you know, there are uh, the, the other vaccines kind of right behind us, uh, right behind these two are based on slightly different technologies and they can be stored at kind of regular fridge temperatures. And, you know, we, we in even in um, uh, very rural countries like where people have done for polio vaccinations, for example, like there, there have been, you know, we have succeeded in bringing those kinds of vaccines uh, into like very remote places. So it's certainly, you know, doable. Um, uh, it just requires planning and kind of, you know, forethought. Yeah. So this has gotten caught up in, you know, the presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Biden team is saying that, you know, delays from Trump and giving them data that they need and sort of sitting down and dealing with the logistics are going to cost people's lives. Trump hasn't even discussed this latest wave. Um, he's been too busy doing whatever he's doing. Um, what is what is how critical is that really in terms of um, getting this rollout moving? What is the role of the federal government, for instance, versus private companies and states in getting this to people? Yeah, so the CDC is sort of like the overarching um, entity overseeing the distribution of the vaccines. And this is what they did in 2009 with the flu vaccines. And this is mm-hmm. actually what they do with um, childhood vaccines. So mm-hmm. they, they kind of have a lot of experience in um, uh, deploying and distributing vaccines. They work with a logistics company called McKesson, um, which will be uh, Pfizer is going to do their own thing, but all, most of the other Operation Warp Speed companies are going to be using McKesson. So mm-hmm. there's this like tried and true system there. 
Um, the CDC has also asked for state and local public health departments to have plans that have already been filed and have already been written. Um, that one, one really big issue, though, is that state and local public health departments are really strapped right now, right? Like they, they have, they've been going through an emergency for the past um, almost year um, and they really need a lot more funding, which should probably come from Congress to roll out this vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the CDC kind of is kind of the central head, but um, the decision-making of like which hospitals are going to get how many doses that happens at the state level. Mm-hmm. How do you think about this in terms of your own work? Are you like um, sick of this story? Um, <laughs> are you like wanting to move on to other things, or is this something you expect to be covering for years oh, ahead? For me, or, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> Only because I hope COVID, the pandemic, goes away. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, you know, I think there are, are times where. I think, man, I wish I could write about something other than COVID right now. Um, and as we were saying, it's it's what can be particularly frustrating is that it feels like I'm writing the same story again, or I'm trying to figure out a new way to say something I've already said that mm-hmm. hopefully will reach someone someone else. Um, but I, I, you know, I think um, this whole experience has renewed my interest in in viruses and just how strange and weird and um, how little we know about the whole world of viruses you know we we mostly think of them when they make us sick but there there's this whole this whole ecology of viruses viruses that infect um, uh, other other animal viruses that um, giant viruses that infect algae that's actually really fascinating and I hope maybe there's like some interest in understanding the ecology of viruses better and the immune system is also very fascinating. So I, you know, I'm trying to, um, as someone who comes from a science background, I think I always write about science in the context of society, but it's, it's, I'm trying to also ground myself in the things that are scientifically interesting. Sarah, it's been great to have you. Oh, good to talk to you too. Thank you so much. You can read Sarah's work uh, at The Atlantic um, in the magazine and at Atlantic.com. You can follow CGR's coverage of the coverage of the virus at CGR.org and watch us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. See you next week.